Well, as the kids make their way out, I invite you to turn your Bibles uh, to Genesis chapter 30. Um, We are working our way through this glorious book, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Um, If you don't have a Bible on you, um, just put up your hand. We want to get a Bible into that hand. We want you to have God's Word open in front of you. Uh, I come with nothing for you. Uh, I have no great wisdom to share. Um, We come together to look at at God's Word and... uh, to sit under his authority this morning. Ponder with me for a moment. What was it that so moved Romeo that he would risk his life to sneak his way into the Capulet Garden to daringly climb up the balcony of Juliet to, to pursue her affection? What was it that so motivated him in these these life-risking, daring actions? It's an interesting question because I think we can answer it from a couple of different perspectives. On one hand, we can say it was clearly Romeo's passionate love for Juliet, right? He did it because he was captivated by her beauty, because he was so enamored with his, his affection for her. It didn't, even, it, it, it didn't even cross his mind not to. It was his love for Juliet that that motivated him to to pursue her. That's a good answer. Your your English Lit 101 professor um, would would probably give you an A on that paper. There's another answer. Why did Romeo risk his life to sneak into the Capulet Garden, to scale the wall, to climb to Juliet's balcony? Because Shakespeare wrote it that way. Obviously. Because Shakespeare wrote it that way. Your English professor may not be as pleased with that much shorter paper, um, but it's true. As Romeo is risking his life and making this passionate appeal, it's the invisible hand of Shakespeare masterfully directing the characters, the events, meticulously weaving together this amazing plot line. Of course, the author is over and above it all, is directing it all. Same way we live our lives here now on this plane, driven by our affections and our decisions and going about our day to day. And at the same time, the great author, the creator, designer of all things is masterfully directing every character, every event, meticulously weaving together his glorious plot line. And it's true. You might be a little offended. You might say, wait a second, I am a sentient being. I have much more glory and much more autonomy than than a fictional character in a made-up storybook. It's true. You're you're like this much greater in glory and autonomy than than fictional Romeo. Um, But God is infinitely greater in glory, infinitely greater in power and wisdom um, than any human author. So we're going to look at this question today. How how do we live our lives in light of that? How do we function and and operate? What does that mean for us? God's providence has been this constant theme through the life of Jacob. We have seen God at work over and over again uh, from before Jacob was even born. God had said the older would serve the younger Esau. Um, The older brother would become the servant of Jacob because God had chosen Jacob For either had done good or bad, God had chosen Jacob to be the recipient of his blessing, the bearer of his covenant promise. 
It was clearly the Lord who had orchestrated Jacob's trip out from the promised land then. It was the Lord's orchestrating that brought him to meet his wife, Rachel, at the well, exactly where his father had met Rebecca. Rebecca. It was God's providence that brought Jacob the trickster into the home of Laban, the trickier trickster, the one who duped him into marrying uh, the older sister Leah before the younger sister Rachel, whom he loved. God is over it all. God is weaving this story. It was God's careful design then, using these fighting sisters, firstly, for their, for their mutual and personal sanctification, secondly, to give birth to these 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And yet through it all, Jacob seems almost oblivious. Finally, here as we come into chapter 30, 31, uh, we see Jacob finally figuring this out, finally coming to terms, coming to to realize and to submit to the, the providence of God that has been working through his life every step of the way. I think there's some helpful stuff for us here to learn um, as we consider um, responding to providence, responding to providence. Now, I I had planned last week to go right to the end of chapter 30, and as I was working on my sermon and trying to bring it all together, it it just didn't go that way. So I ended up cutting it off at verse 24, and what that means is this week we we have some ground to cover. We have to cover the last half of chapter 30, and we're going to go right to the end of chapter 31. Um, I think it's better. I think that's the way uh, it's it's best laid out, but it means we've got a lot of text to cover. Uh, So bear with me. We're going to do some reading this morning. Um, We are um, going to read every section, every word of this book together as we work our way through. Uh, This morning is no exception. Before we get to that, though, would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is trustworthy and true. Thank you that it humbles us. God, we are so quickly high on our own authority and autonomy. It's your providence that we need to see more clearly. It's your care that we need to understand. Lord, give us eyes to see. Humble us before you and your mighty hand this morning. God, would you be at work? Lord, I pray that you would take my words. Lord, if there's any chaff there, if there's anything that is not from you, that that those words would just drift off, would be forgotten. Lord, that your word would go forward into my heart into our hearts that we would see your truth together and be uh, humbled by it, be transformed by it, that we would come to trust you more, to see our lives in the context of your glorious providence, and to trust you all the more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's jump into this first section of the account here. We're going to look at Uh, The second half of chapter 30, uh, again, asking this question, how do we, excuse me, how do we respond to providence? And and the first thing we're going to see is is we need to expose the reality of providence, expose the reality of providence. Before we read this, let me just say, um, 
Jacob is still learning. At this point, we're going to have to cut him some slack. Um, and, and, and you'll see what I mean as we, as we work through this passage together. So Genesis chapter 30, starting in verse 25. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away, that I may go to my home and to my country. Give me my wives and my children whom I served you, that I may go. For you know the service that I have given to you. But Laban said to him, If I found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wage and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know that I have served you and how your livestock have fared with me and and you had little before I came and it was increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? And he said, what shall I give you, Jacob? Uh, sorry, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you'll do this for me, I will again pastor your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all of your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and spotted and speckled among the goats, and they may be my wages. And so my honesty will answer for me later when you come and look at my wages with you, every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, uh, is, if it found with me, shall be considered stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted and every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in charge of his sons, and set them a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees, and peeled the white sticks, uh, the white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. And he set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban, and put his own droves apart, and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before his eyes, before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. So, if you remember from last week, Jacob had these two wives who were sisters, Leah, um, the one um, that he only married because his father-in-law had tricked him into marrying her, and then Rachel, whom he loved. God was working in the lives of these two sisters. He's, he's comforting the, the deeply wounded Leah, and he's confronting the, the, the sinful Ra um, Rachel. But at the same time, the Lord is blessing Jacob abundantly. He, he's pouring out his richness on Jacob with, with offspring. 
He's so far 11 sons in his house. So that's, that's God's providence at work. God has already been blessing him. As we move into the rest of chapter 30, we see the Lord blessing Jacob with flocks, with wealth. Now, he has all these children. Jacob decided that it was time to return to his home country, back to the promised land. As we approach Laban, his father-in-law, this is an abundance of courtesy here. He said to him, let me take my wives, for whom I have served you 14 years, fair and square, and my children, who are mine, and let me go. Let me head off to my home country. Laban balks at that idea. He sees how he has prospered with Jacob there. He doesn't want him to leave. Um, He says to Jacob, "I've, I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Interesting thought. Forgive me if I'm a bit of a skeptic. Um, How much divination did this really take, Laban? Um, Open your eyes. Jacob is the son of Abraham. On his trip to Haran, God had promised Jacob that he would bless him abundantly, that he would be with him. Laban was broke when Jacob came along. He had his daughter sent out as a shepherdess. And, And since Jacob arrived, he has just prospered abundantly. So Jacob actually even says to his father-in-law, verses 28 and 29, you know, you know how I served you and how your livestock has prospered under me. Um, Underlying there, the divination didn't reveal this. This was obvious, Laban. The Lord has blessed you wherever I have turned. Laban is in this strange place. He doesn't trust God's promises enough to take them at face value. Um, He's not there by any means, and yet he clearly sees what God is doing in the life of Jacob. He can't deny it. And I think it's that kind of middle ground that that leaves Laban in this place um, where where he's willing to agree to Jacob's suggestion. Laban tries to to bribe him, to pay him, stay, because this is working really well for me, and and, and, what can I pay you? Jacob says, I don't want your wages, right? We, we played that game with Rachel and Leah. I, I didn't like it. That didn't work out well. What I want is this. I will continue to care for your flock, but you let me keep any of the animals that are speckled or spotted. Typically, the goats were black, the sheep were white, and the odd one of each was a mixture, a goat speckled with white or a sheep speckled with black, And so Laban accepted this deal, firstly, because that was typically a small minority of the flock already. He's willing to risk that little bit to continue uh, getting this blessing that was coming through Jacob. But secondly, because Laban is a trickster and he's confident that once again, he can stack the deck against Jacob. He can manipulate this situation for his own good. He thinks he can manipulate God's blessing. Verse 35 Laban went out that day and removed all of the goats and the sheep that were speckled and spotted. And he sent them a three days journey off to be watched over by his sons. He's he's flat out stolen from Jacob. This is not the deal. He's tilted also the the genetic playing field, right? These kind of purebred sheep and goats are much less likely to give birth to speckled and spotted young. And so we'll see later, uh, Jacob accuses Laban of of changing his wages 10 times. This is one of those 10. But Jacob didn't even let that bother him. He had his own plan. 
And, and it's ironic here. Jacob had already said back in verse 30, Laban, you know that God has prospered you wherever I turn. The Lord has been doing this. But instead of just trusting the Lord, um, he comes up with this cockamamie scheme, this weird idea. He, he stripped the bark off a bunch of branches and, and put them in the water troughs where the, the sheep and the goats would often mate. This is his plan to get more spotted and speckled sheep and goats. Now, if you're thinking that's kind of weird, um, that's exactly what it is. It's kind of weird. Um, there's some speculation. Maybe there was an idea that that a, the vivid sight before the eyes of the ewe um, would, would somehow imprint itself on the embryo as they were being impregnated, cause the spots. Maybe that's what's going through Jacob's head. Um, but this falls somewhere in the realm between superstition and just good old-fashioned junk science. Um, it's nonsense. And Jacob is trusting in his own wisdom, his own efforts. I got this. And yet, what happened? Verse 43 says this about Jacob. The man increased greatly and had large flocks and female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Um, Jacob didn't just get a handful of, of spotted sheep and goats out of this deal. He became unbelievably wealthy. Um, we talked about this back with, with Abraham. Um, camels were just in the process, early days of being domesticated at this time. They were rare. Um, these camels, donkeys, males, servants, female servants. Jacob is like driving a Lamborghini going on vacation on his yacht. That's the kind of rich we're talking about. He's done very well. So why do we say that the branches was junk science? Didn't it work? Well, no. No, Jacob even clarifies that. We'll get to that into chapter 31. We're going to sneak ahead a little bit. Um, verse 9. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father, speaking to Rachel and Leah, and given them to me. In the breeding season, God gave Jacob a dream. Presumably this was after the sticks. And in that dream, the Lord gave Jacob a vision of the striped and spotted animals um, being the ones who were doing the breeding. And, he's, and, and God says, For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you, I am the God of Bethel. He's saying, remember the, the covenant we made? Remember I promised to bless you in Bethel? I'm doing it. This is me, Jacob. This is my work. Jacob was doing his own ridiculous, futile thing, trying to control his own destiny. And yet it's the Lord's providence that blessed him. What a great, soothing truth that is. We are so often foolish like Jacob. We are so often run off on our own way. Um, we, we don't undermine the Lord's providence. God is still at work. Even in our modern scientific age, we're still surrounded by all kinds of junk science, all kinds of superstition like, like Rachel's mandrakes, like Jacob's peeled sticks. Um, worse yet, so many of these um, come out of, frankly, demonic religions. There's a store just down the road from my house that sells crystals, all these different crystals. And they're said to hold certain kinds of energy. And, and of course, our bodies are made up of 
energy somehow, and, and the, the energy of the crystals will engage with the energy of your body, and, and some will give you peace, and some will give you strength, and some will give you balance in your life. Others will give you uh, emotional or, or spiritual healing. We were in Edmonton a, a couple weeks ago, down on White Ave, and, and you couldn't go two stores in a row without coming across um, Tibetan singing bowls. Have you seen these? They're everywhere. They're kind of pretty. They come with a little wooden stick and they make your kids all awkward when you keep banging them in the store. Um, They're kind of fun that way. But under the surface, the purpose of this singing bowl is that the vibrations coming out from it will engage with the vibrations of your body and resonate and and, and, and resonate with the different chakras in your body and, and, and help with all kinds of physical healing, enhance your intuition or your creativity or your spiritual connection. The list goes on and on. But the point is this. These things are completely at odds, completely incompatible with with what the Bible tells us about our world and about our body and about our souls and about our our peace and our joy and our happiness and our spiritual reality. They're they're two entirely different worldviews. They they can't go together. The, The little coexist bumper sticker, yeah, it doesn't work. They don't coexist. They're drastically different realities that we're talking about. They bring us to this one basic question. Do you trust God? Do you trust God? You claim to be a a child of the God of the universe who created and sustains all things by his almighty, all-knowing, all-wise hand. Why would we look to and give credit to crystals? or chakra alignments, or anything else. We look to Scripture. We look to God's Word. Look to where God has revealed Himself, to where the Creator has told us how to find peace in Him. Don't rob God of His glory, trusting in rocks and bowls or anything else, vibrations and and energy. Now, let's be careful think this still leaves room for the proper use of medicine. I think this leaves room for hard work and personal responsibility, right? Paul told Timothy to take a little wine for your stomach. Good science and medicine are not incompatible with what God has revealed to us about his world. But in the end, even then, even as we take good use of this world, even as we apply hard work and diligence, what are you trusting in? Where's your ultimate hope? Because even the Lord is over those things. It's the Lord who heals. It's the Lord who prospers. It's the Lord who gives peace. He must be the the fountain of of our hope, of our healing, of our fullness and wholeness. It's his providence that has to be the the foundation of it all. Psalm 103.19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all, period. Ephesians 1, 11 and 12, in him, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory comes from him. Our hope is in him for an an inheritance 
for every good thing. And it's he who orders our steps, who guides our way, so that as we hope in Christ, we would be to the, to the honor of his glory, not our own, not crystals and rocks. So give him the glory he deserves. Trust in him. Look to that inheritance, that spiritual inheritance that he offers eternal life with him. That's where we get our hope. That's where we get our joy and our peace and our comfort. Don't don't bury it in nonsense. Expose the reality of providence. It's not our own self-will, our own self-effort. Trusting in God, God alone. So exposing the reality of his providence. Secondly, then, um, we see from Jacob uh, the need to embrace the responsibility of providence. Embrace the responsibility of providence. Look at uh, chapter 31. Uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. It says, Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained great wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. The Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. And so Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, and yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, let the spotted, uh, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore spotted. If he said, let the striped be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. And the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob. And I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing for you. I am the God of Bethel, where you appointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Now Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. It took Jacob a little bit, but he figured it out. He came to clearly see that this was, this was God's prosperity. This was God's gift to him. It's the result of God's providence, not his own efforts and striving. And that puts him then in a place of responsibility. He's the head of the household. He's the leader in this family, and he's responsible to lead them. Not only himself trusting in the providence of the Lord and so leading his family well, but teaching them to see it. The Lord spoke to Jacob, calling him to return to his homeland. This is like the, the reverse call of Abraham. Go back to your people, back to your home. 
And these next few verses are really quite incredible. Jacob pulls his two wives aside to a private place out in the field. Um, Remember from previously, those tents are not exactly private. They won't be interrupted or overheard. And beautifully and compellingly, he shares with them what the Lord has done. He helps them to see the Lord's providence and, and he conveys to them the Lord's command. Now notice there's no credit given to his peeled sticks here. Um, It's not about his own clever tricks or even the long hours that he had worked. All of those things um, are part of the story, Um, but, but Jacob doesn't see that now. He sees the credit belongs to the Lord. It's God who's given him these things. And so he pointed to, to, to four works of God, bringing them to where they were and, and, and giving these to, to Rachel and Leah as, as reasons to trust the Lord. Come, my wives, see what God has done. Verse 5, he says, Laban is no longer favorable to me, but it doesn't matter because the God of my fathers has been with me. Verse 7, he says, your father has changed my wages 10 times. But God didn't let him harm me. Verse 9 says, God has taken away the livestock of Laban and given them to me. Verses 11 and 13, God spoke to me in this dream saying, I am the God of Bethel. I am the God who made this this covenant with you, Jacob. This is a a beautiful example, husbands, of, of godly headship. How to lead your wife well. He doesn't bulldoze his wives. Right? He doesn't just inform them. I have heard the voice of God and I am the authority. This is what we're going to do. He values their opinion. He's seeking their input. He wants to hear from them. He's looking for their affirmation. If God is leading me in this way, surely he will also be leading them in this way. But he's not only looking for their input. He also takes his leadership seriously. And he's carefully pointing out God's providence. He's gently, humbly laying out the the logical and the theological reasons behind why he feels they should leave. He's teaching his family. Now there's a, a broader responsibility here. Every believer, we should be quick to speak about the, the goodness of God, about the providence of God. You're talking to friends, you're chatting with people in the the grocery store, line up, you're you're interacting with your neighbors. Don't don't hide the providence of God. This is so easy to do. I fail at this. Don't don't talk about your life as if it's haphazard, as if it was all your own cleverness or your own hard work or as if it was blind luck. Talk about God's providence and his goodness, even to those who don't believe. Express your hope in the Lord. Someone comes to you and says, wow, you have beautiful children. What do we say? Oh, thanks. Or, oh, we got really lucky. No. Why would we do that? Well, the Lord has been really kind to me. This is God's blessing. But there is this narrower application as well. Husbands, do you speak to your wife, to your children this way? Are we teaching them about who God is? What his word says, the way Jacob does here. This is, this is our job, husbands. This is on our shoulders. Ephesians 5 says we're to, to love our wives as Christ loved the church, laying himself down for her, that he might wash her with the washing of pure water to present her as a beautiful bride before the Lord. 
Are we taking the lead in helping our families to see their lives through the perspective of God's providence and God's faithfulness and God's grace? Talk with your kids about who the Lord is. Open up the word with them around the dinner table. I know that's intimidating. And if I feel that, I'm sure you do too, but I'm with you. Open the word, read together. Explore it together. Don't don't miss opportunities to worship the Lord with your kids as you see God's faithfulness pointed out. Look what the Lord has given us, children. This is what God has done. Maybe they wouldn't even see it. Maybe it's behind the scenes stuff that you're dealing with. Open that up. Talk about the things that the Lord is teaching you. That's a responsibility um, that the providence of God leaves on our shoulders to share it, to, to teach it. So we need to expose the reality of providence. We need to embrace that responsibility to to share it. And then looking at chapter 31, 17 to 35, thirdly then, it's on us to engage the risk of providence. Engage the risk of providence. Look with me, uh, chapter 31, starting in verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove them away, all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father, Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told to Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful. Not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched his tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and have driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and, and did not tell me so that I might have Uh, sent you away with mirth and song with tambourine and lyre? Why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and uh, and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It's in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. Why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Obviously, that's the reason why he left without telling him. And then verse 32, Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Jacob went in, uh, sorry, Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. 
And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And he said to her, let not my Lord, um, sorry, she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry, for I cannot rise before you, for the way of the woman is upon me. And so he searched, but did not find the household gods. So after hearing from Jacob about God's providence and God's protection, Leah and Rachel agree. Whatever God has said, do it. Let's go. We're with you. Now, on one hand, um, maybe you thought this at the moment, um, there is no such thing as risk in following God's providence. That is not a risk, not at all. If God has said, go and you go, you are not risking anything. How how can there be risk in obeying the all-wise, all-powerful God of the universe? But it sure doesn't feel that way, does it? Understanding God's providence requires us to engage this feeling of, of risk. We actually have to step out in trusting him and, and obeying him. That's what Jacob did. He rounded up his family, his livestock. He sent them off ahead of him back to his father's home. And they left together. Now, think about this. It's easy for us as we just kind of read through these stories so quickly, Um, but Jacob has lived here for 20 years now. Rachel and Leah grew up here. This is their home. All of their children were born here. This is where they were when they became wealthy. They've built an extremely comfortable life here. Now God is calling them just pack it up and leave? Leave it all behind? This would not have been easy. It's curious that as they left, it seems Rachel's not quite as ready to go as Jacob was. Verse 19 tells us that Laban had gone out to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. So Laban had these household gods, these idols that he kept in his home that he would pray to, that he trusted in to give him prosperity and wealth and health. Rachel is painted here in contrast to Jacob. She lacks faith. Even after everything that Rachel has seen and heard, she is not quite ready to truly let go. She's hanging on to these household gods that she had grown up with. She's hedging her bets. She's she's bringing along this this security blanket from, from her past. She's not actually ready to walk away, to fully trust in the Lord. And yet, if we follow Rachel's story, And these idols, just for a moment, where does this lead? Where does this end up? There's this poetic twist. Rachel stole these household gods. Um, She's looking to these idols for, for protection and provision, and all of a sudden, they can't even protect themselves. All of a sudden, she's protecting them. She's hiding them. And it's not clear if she's lying or telling the truth about the the way of the woman, um, that it was her time of the month, but It doesn't really matter. The the picture is painted. A woman on her cycle was considered unclean, ceremonially. And and now these idols are hidden under her saddle. These household gods are being absolutely shamed and defiled. 
Some gods these turned out to be. We hang on to these things. All right, I'm going to follow Christ, but boy, I'm just going to keep a little bit of trust in these investments. I'm going to keep just a little bit of trust in, well, I'm just going to go out and, and maybe indulge here and there. We, we bring these things along, think we can follow God and hang on to these things, but it blows up. There's no value. It's folly. Jacob, on the other hand, trusted the Lord. His concern proved valid. Uh, as soon as Laban heard that Jacob had left, he's furious. He, he gathered up the, the men of the household. These, these kinsmen here appeared to be basically his, his family army. And they chased after, eventually caught up to Jacob. On the way, the Lord appeared to Laban, warned him, don't hinder Jacob in any way. But Laban was still upset at losing Jacob. He's watching all of this wealth just go out of his home. It's a mess. It's a disaster. But, but this is what Jacob was risking in following the Lord. He knew this wouldn't be popular with Laban. He knew this wouldn't make sense to him. He wouldn't like it or understand it. But God's providence required that he embrace that risk. Actually stepping out in obedience. Even though it would be awkward, even though it would cost him greatly, even though it would set him absolutely at odds with the world around him. Obeying the Lord is not easy. It's not comfortable. Family, friends, coworkers, they, they won't understand. You're going to open up your Bible and say, this is what I'm going to live by. This is what is going to, to shape my convictions. This is my worldview, and that won't be popular. But do you truly believe in God's providence, in his sovereignty? Do you really believe that, that he is who he says he is? Responding to God's providence demands that, that we engage that risk. Do you trust him? Are you like Rachel, holding on to some of those ways of the world, keeping one foot out the door, hedging your bets? holding on to the things from your old life, your old strategies for security, for joy, for happiness? Or are you willing, like Jacob, to, to step out? To step out in faith? To be different? To live in a way that will put you in conflict with this world? Expose the reality of providence. We need to see it for what it is. We need to embrace the, the responsibility of providence and speak about it. Teach it to our children, to our families, and then engage the risk of providence. Step out in obedience. Finally, then, we see in Jacob's life, then we get to enjoy the rest of providence. The rest of providence. Learning to, to see God's providence, to, to trust in it, to, to live in light of it. Ultimately, it, it gives us rest. It brings us to a place of peace. Look together, verses 36, we'll go all the way to verse 55. Then Jacob became angry, and he berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. 
what was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Whether it was by day, the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my, sheep, my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I've served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages 10 times. And if God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely you you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, all that you have is mine. But what can I do this day? For these my daughters are for their children whom they have borne. Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. And so Jacob took stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jeger Shadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid Mizpah, uh, and Mizpah, for he said, the Lord will watch between you and me, and we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughter's or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one else, uh, no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. And then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and pillar which I have set between you and me? This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. And they ate bread and they spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren, his daughters, and blessed them. And Laban departed and returned home. Jacob had finally had enough. He reached his limit, all of these accusations, the years of being cheated and mistreated, and and he lost it. He finally blew his cork. He responded to to Laban. Now, he's far from perfect. He's not the greatest example here as as he kind of loses his cool. And yet, underneath that, what we see is his conscience is clear. To be fair... He's still unaware that that Rachel has stolen the the idols, um, so he doesn't have the full picture. But he knows that he didn't take them. In fact, he knows that that contrary to all of Laban's accusations, he didn't take a single thing. And so he he lays this before Laban. What's my offense? Put it out there. What sin do you accuse me of? You, You felt through all my goods. What did you find? Answer, nothing. You know that I worked hard as a shepherd, went way over and above. The livestock were, were killed by wild animals. I didn't, I didn't count that to your loss. I, I, I took it as a loss of my own flock. He worked through heat and cold, long days and longer nights. 
20 years he worked tirelessly for Laban. Laban was unfair to him, cheated him, tricked him. Jacob says, if God had not been with me, even now you would have sent me away empty-handed. Laban comes with this false sweetness. Oh, I would have sent you away with, with party and kisses. Yeah, right. And he immediately goes to, and I could hurt you. Now, Jacob was right. There's this amazing statement here um, about our theology of work. We, we'd love to identify with Jacob's outburst, wouldn't we? Maybe some of you are picturing your boss right now. Um, we'd love to be justified in just cutting him down a few notches or that person that you did work for who, who demanded everything and paid nothing. We'd love to let him know all the things that they've done wrong and all the things that we've done right. Don't miss the fact. These words from Jacob happen after 20 years of hard work. Jacob was trusting the Lord. He was working humbly, diligently, peacefully, even sacrificially under a corrupt and wicked, cheating boss. After 20 years of that, he can say to Laban, tell me one thing I did wrong. Only then does he claim this honorable service in the face of hardship. And because of that, because of his honesty and his work ethic, his, his trust in the Lord through the middle of that and his, his view of God's providence, now Jacob has peace. His heart is at rest. Trusting in the Lord's providence, walking in obedience. In many ways, right now, his, his life is turned upside down. He's left one home. He hasn't arrived at the next. Everything's upside down. But he's confident in the Lord's care. He's confident that the fear of Isaac is on his side. That's a, that's a cool name for God there, the fear of Isaac. That, that word fear speaks of trembling, the one who makes Isaac tremble, the awesome God. If that God is with me, then, then what else matters? What else can happen? The words of Paul from Romans 8.31, what shall we say to these things if God is for us, who can be against us? If I'm trusting in him for that inheritance, then, then what are you going to take away? So Laban continues with these subversive accusations insinuating that, that Jacob had stolen from him, that he had driven his wives off by the sword, that there was an, a threat of him mistreating his daughters. And it's Laban who wants this covenant. He calls for it out of fear. They, they build this pillar, this heap. Um, they give it different names. Um, both names simply mean a heap of witnesses. Um, Jacob names it in Hebrew. Laban names it in Aramaic. Verse 52, Laban gives the purpose of the pillar, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap to me to do harm. It's to keep them from attacking one another, to keep peace between them. As many times as Laban had attacked and cheated Jacob, now he's worried that Jacob will cheat him. But with that, Laban is off. He kissed his daughters, his grandchildren. He headed home. Laban is gone. And Jacob's at peace because he, he gets it. If the Lord is at work, if God is doing this, if he is the God of Bethel who has promised to, to care for me, to watch over me, to bring me back through to the, to the promised land, and he is faithful, 
then I have no fear. Then I can rest in that. And whatever else happens doesn't matter. I think it's helpful as we look at these stories to remember who this was written to originally. Remember, this is Moses writing this account for the people of Israel as they were wandering through the wilderness. They had been rescued by God out of Egypt, but they had not yet entered into the promised land. And there's some clear parallels here. I think Moses is giving them something that they're picking up on. Jacob was a slave under Laban, just as Israel had been a slave under Pharaoh. The Lord called Jacob out of slavery to return to the promised land, just as the Lord has called Egypt, or sorry, Israel out of Egypt, bringing them to the promised land. The Lord had defiled and overcome um, the household gods of Laban. Much more dramatically, the Lord had defiled and overcome all the gods of Egypt through the plagues. Looking closely at chapter 31, verse 16, Rachel and Leah say, All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. That word, taken away, it's, a, it's an uncharacteristically strong word. And it's the same word that we find in the book of Exodus. As the Israelites are leaving the land of Egypt, Exodus 12, 36, the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have whatever they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. That word plundered is the same word. God is comforting, encouraging his people now wandering through the wilderness saying the Lord has done this before. This is God's providence at work. Look at, look at the life of Jacob. He's doing it again. In spite of all the sin and deception out of the, the slavery and captivity, the invisible hand of this perfect, mighty author is still weaving together his flawless story. Don't go back to those other gods. The Lord defeated them, defiled them. They couldn't even save themselves. They can't save you. In and through all of that, the Lord is able to enrich those who trust in him. Even through the trial, even through the, the wilderness, God will care for his children who trust him. And here we are, church, by grace, rescued out of the slavery of sin, rescued out from under that tyranny. God has called us to follow him to the promised land, to our eternal home, and we're not there yet. We're in the wilderness. Will he bring us through? Will he carry us on? Will he care for us? He's done it before, again and again. Do you trust him? Do you believe that by his providence, he's able to, to carry you through, that our God is the God who even enriches his children in the middle of the trials? Do you see the invisible hand of our perfect author at work? Will you then expose that reality of providence? Embrace the responsibility of teaching it and passing it on. Engage the risk of, of walking in obedience to him. And then enjoy the blessing of resting in it, of having this unshakable confidence that no matter where I go, what the Lord brings next, he is weaving together his perfect plan and he is able to care for us. Would you pray with me as the worship team comes?
Father, we are so humbled by your greatness and your glory, your majesty and your strength. God, you are so faithful. You are so wise and mighty. You, you orchestrate all things. And yet we so often lack trust. We so often fear. We so often look to the, the broken things of this world for our hope, for our peace, for our joy. God, would you help us this morning to see afresh your providence at work in our lives, to look back and to see how you have meticulously carried us through time and time again, how you have rescued us and been faithful to us, to look forward with confident hope, to step forward today in, in obedience and trust in you, with peace, resting in your faithfulness, looking at that glorious inheritance that you have given to us that we know is ours as we wait on you and trust in you, Lord. Would you help us to see you again more clearly, we pray in Jesus' name.